Okay, so we're going to continue on with the Gilded Age, and we're going to get into the urbanization in the Gilding Age, or Gilded Age. When we first talked about the Gilded Age, we talked about industrialism and urbanization and politics all playing a very large role. So now we're to that urbanization part, which is the dramatic growth of cities. So the U.S. population by 1900 is going to double to about 80 million, and this is from 1870. And then by the time we reach 1920, we're looking at about 105 million. Now, the populations of cities is going to triple by 1900. 40% of all U.S. citizens or all, all those who lived in the U.S. is going to include immigrants are going to live in cities. In 1900, New York City had around 3.5 million people and it's beca will become the second largest city in the world, with London being the first. Now, Chicago and Philadelphia had over a million people. And back in, if we look back in 1860, there was no American city that even had a million people in it. So, All right, one of the means of allowing this is going to be skyscrapers. Now, with the Industrial Revolution, we got a lot of steel. Steel is going to allow for the construction of these taller buildings because iron could not withstand all of the weight of the skyscrapers. Um, elevators are going to need to be perfected in order for these tall buildings to be functional. The first steel frame skyscraper was the Home Insurance Building that was built in Chicago in 1885, and it was 10 stories tall. Louis Sullivan was the most important architect in the development of these skyscrapers, and he advanced the idea that form follows function while making these buildings. Some consider his Wainwright building, which was built in 1891 in St. Louis, to be the first true skyscraper. The Brooklyn Bridge is going to link the boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn, which are two of America's three largest cities at the time. The technological marvel was the first suspension bridge ever built in the U.S., and it was designed by John Roebling. We're also going to get mass transit, and this is going to facilitate commuting. The electric streetcar was the most important. Uh, we had the streetcar suburbs that will emerge as a middle class and some upper class people are going to move further away from city centers where they worked. The electric subways are going to be very important in moving people as well. The largest cities in America, America will become a megalopolis, which are divided into distinctly different districts. Uh, these districts were for business, industry, and residences, and they were also segregated by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic class. Uh, economic and social opportunities are going to attract a lot of people to cities. Rural America could not compete with this. The commercial districts are going to mushroom with department stores emergings, emerging. Uh, department stores are going to drive out a lot of the what you're you would consider the mom and pop shops they're going to put them out of business because they couldn't offer the huge selection and the lower prices that these department stores provided so basically a lot like what happens today when you end up with a, a walmart or a sam's or like a home depot or lowe's that pop into an area some of these smaller like hardware or grocery stores will end up going out uh, cities also have the lure of entertainment electricity indoor plumbing and telephones uh, cities are going to give women a whole new career opportunity. Over a million new female workers are going to emerge in the 1890s. Their new jobs would include things like social workers, secretaries, store clerks, uh, seamstresses, phone operators, which you talked about in the last, chap last chapter, and bookkeepers. Many poor women would work in extremely deplorable conditions like these sweatshops. Now, it's going to be your middle and upper class women who didn't work 
because it wasn't considered socially acceptable. Uh, the very few acceptable ones would have been like... Sorry about that. Stuff just got delivered. Anyway, uh, some of the socially acceptable ones are going to be teaching, nursing, clerical work, and uh, reform. By 1900, over 5 million women are going to work for wages. 18% will work in clothing and garment trades or textile mills. Uh, almost 40% are going to be domestic servants. Others were farm laborers, teachers, and sales clerks. Most women were actually uh, younger, usually poor, and many times unmarried. There's going to be a caste system that will emerge among young well, among women workers in general. Uh, clerking was considered respectable work and was open to mainly American girls or the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant girls. Factory work did not gain any, any kind of instant respectability. These were usually farm girls or working class girls, and these workers could be accepted by those higher on the, the social ladder eventually. The workers formed the Women's Trade Union League and other female unions. Uh, domestic servants were considered the bottom class. Usually they were foreign-born, like Irish, or they were black. Often worked 12 hours a day, six days a week. They got off for the Sabbath, and they had no organizations to improve their situations or their the system of business. Class distinction became the most pronounced in U.S. history by 1900. There were, there's going to be a new class of that super wealthy that we talked about, the nouveau riche. In 1890, the wealthiest 1% of families, uh, families owned 51% of the real and personal property. Meanwhile, only 44% of families at the bottom owned 1.2% of all the property. Uh, the wealthy and the wealth the well-to-do, so like 12% of families, they owned 86% of the nation's wealth. These were people that traveled to Europe as children. They attended colleges or uh, academies, owned more than one house. They had boats and carriages and automobiles. They usually employed several servants, and they believed in identity of interest, idea of social order. So each class had its place in society and should not challenge it. Of course, they believe that. They're at the top. Uh, the middle class. On your lower end of this are going to be salesmen and clerks, your government workers and teachers. On the upper end are you're going to be your lawyers and your doctors, mainly white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. But uh, they're usually poor if they were in the South, the West, or the Midwest. They usually lived in relatively large homes, employed at least one domestic servant. Uh, respectable women didn't debate public issues, and no middle ground existed between purity and immorality. So as you were one or the other. Uh, then you had your working class. These were usually Catholics, especially Irish, Irish and they were foreign, usually uh, Eastern and Southern Europe, or they were African American. Now, between 23 and 30 percent of the workforce was out of work for some period every year of this working class. By 1900, nearly 20 percent of all U.S. children under 15 were in a non were in non agricultural work, and 20 percent of women worked. Most were young, and they were in between school and marriage. Cities had extremely deplorable conditions. There was rampant crime. There was prostitution, lots of, you know, drugs like cocaine. Uh, there was gambling. And lots of violent crime, so not just like petty theft and whatnot. Uh, unsanitary conditions persisted as, as cities could not keep up with the growth, so we didn't have the system to, you know, to keep it clean. You had what was called dumbbell tenements. These were first developed in 1879. They were usually seven or eight stories high with very little ventilation. While families were crammed into each floor, they comprised about 50% of New York City housing by the end of the century. And despite later criticism, these dwellings 
were an improvement to what, to what and to where these people were living at before. All right, so the political machines. Now, cities are going to see the rise of a political machine where basically one party dominated through what was called a spoil system. And the spoil system is I'm going to give it to these people that um, as a favor or because they're family or because they're friends. It's not the merit system that we have today because the spoil system is actually illegal now for obvious reasons. Uh, but the merit system is, is based off of like your testing on certain like government government exams or how long you've worked in a department or how well you've done you know in said department anyway they're going to use the political political system to make money for party leaders and a lot of it was done very unethically and illegally now you had patronage and these were where wealthy wealthy interests paid off politicians in order to profit from municipal and state projects. The Tammany Hall political machine in New York City was the largest and the most notorious. Boss Tweed, uh, William Marcy Tweed, was the most notorious of all the corrupt political bosses. He led the Tweed ring that used bribery, graft, and fraudulent, 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 I can't say it, sorry, uh, elections to gain around $200 million at the expense of New York City. The New York Times exposed him in 1871 through the political cartoon of Thomas Nast. Nast is also credited with having invented the modern political cartoon, the modern political cartoon, because we had political cartoons all the way back with the idea of join or die. Uh, Samuel Tilden prosecuted Tweed and sent him to jail where he died a few years later. Later, George Washington Plunkett, a minor boss in Tammany Machine, gained notoriety for his pandering to immigrants and corruption. Plunkett would get word from civil boards about imminent projects, and he would secretly buy land and resell it to the city at a higher price. He called it an honest graft. Other major cities like Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Cleveland, and Kansas City also de developed potent political machines. Reformers hated these practices and worked to curb the power of the political machine. So we're going to have a new immigration. This occurred in, the, in 1880. So let's do a real quick review of the old immigration. Now, up to the 1840s, most were Anglo-Saxons from Britain and Western Europe, so think Germany and Scandinavia. Most were literate and easily adapted to American society. 1850 to 1880, over 6 million immigrants arrived, and this was still part of the old immigration. Before 1880, the stereotype of immigration was German and Irish. Germans were seen as sturdy, hardworking, serious people. They constituted the largest number of immigrants by 1900. After the social upheavals of late 19th century, they were seen as socialists, anarchists, and communists. Germans could be Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish. Some joined the Republican Party and gained respectability among the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Irish were perceived as dirty or drunk, immoral, Catholic, and violent. They were second in numbers to German immigrants by 1900, though the largest in number between 1840 and 1860. They became America's first proletariat or large-scale working class, and most could not afford land. They climbed to the social class through or middle class through politics. Most were Democrats and fed the stereotype of corrupt machine politics. Civil service reform was largely a native, nativist class reaction against the, against the Irish. Now, the new immigration. Between 1880 and 1920, about 27 million immigrants came to the U.S. About 11 million eventually returned home. Most came from Eastern and Southern Europe. 
So you had your Italians, your Jews, your Poles, your Greeks, Hungarians, uh, your Croatians, and your Slovalians, your Slovaks, your uh, Czechs, and your Bulgarians, Serbians, and Montenegrins. By 1910, a third of Americans were either foreign-born or had one parent foreign-born. Most came through Ellis Island and New York Harbor from 1882 to 1954. Others came through areas like Boston and Philadelphia and some of the West Coast ports. Also down in the southern ports of like um, Galveston, Mobile, and New Orleans. New immigrants came to live in enclaves in New York and Chicago where their numbers were actually larger than, than their European cities. Most were Orthodox Christians or Jewish from Eastern Europe. Um, most came from countries with very little democracy, and they were heavily illiterate. The new immigrants struggled to maintain their cultures in America because many Catholic uh, parochial schools and Jewish Hebrew schools are going to be established but not maintained. Foreign language newspapers, theaters, food stores, restaurants, uh, parishes, and social classes are actually going to be founded because they're wanting to continue to maintain this culture. And the first generation of American Americans often rejected parts of their parents' culture and actually became mainstreamed. Now, the reason for this immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe was due to overpopulation in Europe and rapid industrialization is going to leave a lot of people either nowhere to go or forced a lot of them to change their traditional occupations. America was seen as a land of opportunity because the conditions in Eastern and Southern Europe were often dismal. The Statue of Liberty, which was originally a gift from the French, came to symbolize America's immigration as ships coming to Ellis Island sailed by it in New York Harbor. You know, the whole give us your tires, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. And this was obviously an appeal for immigrants. Uh, industrialists sought low-wage labor. Railroads sought buyers for their land grants. States wanted more population. Steamship lines wanted more business. Persecution of minorities in Europe constituted a push factor. So you have a push and a pull factor. So you have this pull factor we just talked about, and now we're into this push factor. The Jews were savagely persecuted in Russia in the 1880s, especially in Polish areas in Russia. And this is going to be due to the pogroms, which was is exactly what it sounds, you know, what I was just talking about, that it is a persecution. Um, a lot of times these people will be rounded up and in many cases killed or put into some type of encampment. Uh, most Immigrant Jews came to New York. They were resented by German Jews who had arrived decades earlier, as well as the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or WASPs. Most had lived in cities in Europe as tailors or shopkeepers. They were difficult to assimilate since they lived together in slum enclaves. Ethnic and religious minorities in Europe faced conscription, economic hardship, and persecution. Conscription is forced, is where you're forced into the military one way or another. About 25% of the 20 million who came between 1820 and 1900 went back to Europe. They earned enough money to improve their lives in the old world, and they had no desire to assimilate into the American culture. Now, this group of people was not considered part of the new immigration. This is Chinese immigration. The Burlingame Treaty, that's B-U-R-L-I-N-G-A-M-E, in 1868, between the U.S. and China, allowed unrestricted immigration to work on the Transcontinental Railroad. The Security of State, William H. Seward, hoped to open Chinese markets to U.S. goods. By 1870, the Chinese accounted for 9% of California's population, about 75,000 people. Angel Island in San Francisco was the main processing center for Chinese immigrants. 
Now, the Chinese that lived in America, they worked as gold and silver miners and on the Transcontinental Railroad. They represented the highest percentage of any immigrant group in the U.S. who returned home. Chinatowns developed with mostly single men. The first few Chinese women who came were turned into prostitutes. In San Francisco, most worked as cooks, laundrymen, or domestic servants. After the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, Chinese immigration caused anger among a lot of the white workers in California, especially the Irish in San Francisco. Because of bad economic times resulting from the 1873 panic, this is going to be a major cause. And so there's this bad economic timing. Uh, employers used Chinese workers as a hedge against unionization. The Chinese were terrorized in the streets. Many were killed. Others had their pigtails sheared off. And, you know, this was uh, an important part of their religion. They were persecuted in mining towns in Colorado and Wyoming. The Working Men's Party of California, which was led by Dennis Kearney, K-E-A-R-N-E-Y, it called for the exclusion of Chinese from California and the U.S. It was an influential party that earlier helped draft the California Constitution in the late 1840s. It accused the Chinese of taking jobs from American workers, and the California construction denied Chinese jobs on public works or public work projects and say they cannot work for companies in the state. They also influenced national policy. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 into Chinese immigration, and it lasted all the way up until 1943. To put that in perspective, that was the year my dad was born. Now, there's going to be several reactions to this new immigration. So we get those political machines, and they're going to cater to the new immigrants. Bosses are, bosses are often going to trade jobs and services for folks, creating powerful immigrant voting blocks for their own purposes. Machines provided employment on the city's payroll, found housing for new immigrants, uh, gifts of food and clothing to the needy, helped with legal counseling, and helped get schools, parks, and hospitals built in immigrant neighborhoods. Tammany Hall in New York City fueled much of its power through the immigrant vote. Other major, major cities like Boston and Philadelphia, St. Louis, were also they also developed potent political machines using this same uh, the same basic, basic scheme, basically. Uh, social crusaders are going to attempt to improve the hor horrible conditions in cities. The motivation was a fear of violent revolution among the working class. The social gospel movement is going to emerge. It advocated that Christians should work to improve life on earth for those less fortunate rather than willing, you know, more like rather, rather than waiting for the afterlife, let's help these people now. Uh, they sought to improve pro problems of alcoholism and unemployment. They tried to mediate between managers and unions, and they didn't, sp they didn't spark the progressive reform at the turn of the century. Or they did, sorry. They did a lot to spark it. Uh, Reverend Josiah Strong believed Protestant religious principles would help solve the social problems that were caused, brought by industrialization, urbanization, and immigration. Uh, Washington Gladden worked on open churches in working-class districts. Salvation Army is going to arrive from England in 1879. It was a Protestant-based service organization and appealed to the, the poverty-stricken because free soup was the most obvious contribution. We're, we're going to get into this settlement house movement. And this is primarily a women's movement, the northern, white, middle-class, college-educated, and prosperous women's movement. Teaching or volunteerism was almost the only permissible occupations for young women of the middle class, and women were prohibited in politics due to Victorian ideals and the cult of domesticity. Uh, Jane Addams was one of the first 
generation of college-educated women. She believed living among the poor would appeal to young educated women who needed firsthand experience with the realities of poverty in the city. She established what was called Hull House in Chicago in 1889 along with Ellen Gates Starr. That's two R's. Immigrants were taught English. They took classes in nutrition, health, and child care, and they organized social gatherings. It helped immigrants cope with American big city life, and it became a model for other settlement houses in other cities. Lillian Wald established the Henry Street Settlement in New York City, and settlement houses became centers of women's activism and social reform. Florence Kelly was perhaps the most important reformer to come out of the settlement house movement. She won legislation regulating hours and working conditions for women and children, and she also sought to help African Americans. The American Red Cross was established in 1884 by Clara Barton, who had been a leading nurse during the Civil War, and it provided disaster relief for such catastrophes as fires and floods. Municipal housing concentrated on the quality of life in poor neighborhoods, street cleaning conditions in slaughterhouses, sanitation in public schools, pure milk and water, or clean milk and water, and the suppression of vice. The WC, or YWCA was founded in 1854, and it helped young women in urban areas for many decades. Now, nativism is going to, going to eventually be a problem. Uh, nativists viewed Eastern and Southern Europeans as culturally and religiously exotic and often treated them badly because of this. They were alarmed at high birth rates common among people who lived a low standard of life, and they were even more alarmed at the prospect of a mongrelized America with a mixture of what they considered to be inferior Southern European blood. They hated immigrants' willingness to work for starvation wages. I mean, if when you're at that point, you got to get paid, right? Uh, they were concerned over dangerous foreign ideas like socialism, communism, and anarchism. Anti-foreign organizations are going to start cropping up. The American Protective Association, or the APA, was formed in 1887, and it urged voting against Roman Catholic candidates for office. Labor leaders were infuriated, infuriated at the use of immigrants as strike breakers. Business interests favored increased immigration. Immigrants provided cheap labor and served as scabs for strike breakers, which we talked about in the last chapter, and the influence of big business and politics meant that Congress would not pass any significant immigration laws regarding Europeans until the 1920s. All right, so the crusade for prohibition of America. Liquor cons uh, consumption increased in the years following the Civil War. Immigrant groups resisted temperance or prohibition laws, and saloons in the late 19th century were exclusively male. So we got the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or the WCTU, which was organized in 1874 and led by Francis Willard. It increasingly saw alcohol alcoholism as a result of poverty, not the cause, but put enormous pressure on states to abolish uh, abolished alcohol, and it was somewhat successful. It was the most powerful or most important female reform organization in the 19th century and the most powerful female lobbying group. Uh, it championed Planned Parenthood, and it was the most important women's suffrage group in the late 19th century and included uh, um, African Americans and Native Americans. It supported an eight-hour workday, and it supported the Knights of Labor. All right, carry a nation. 
Not we're not we're not carrying a nation. This is a woman's name. Used her hatchet to smash saloon bottles and bars, and her actions hurt the prohibition movement. And she was arrested over thirty times. Um, if any of you have ever seen Murdoch Mysteries, she's actually makes an appearance when they're talking about closing down saloons in a certain area in Canada. I digress. The Anti-Saloon League was formed in 1893. It was run by men and picked up by the WCTU's fight and had more political connections political connections to get legislation passed. By 1900, 25% of Americans were living in communities with restrictions on alcohol. Statewide prohibition laws swept through new states during the, prog uh, the progressive area after 1900. In 19, 19, the 18th Amendment made alcohol illegal, something we talked about last year with those of you who were in civics. Women's fight for liberation and suffrage. Women were growing more independent in the urban environment. Fewer children were born as couples increasingly used birth control. Marriages were increasingly being delayed as well. Extra children were not economically feasible in an urban setting. The National American Women's Suffrage Association formed in 1890, and the women's rights movement had split after the Civil War. The nation's Women's Suffrage Association was founded in 1869, and it included Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. It excluded men, and it opposed black suffrage until women could vote. The American Women's Suffrage Association was led by Lucy Stone, and it included men. It supported black suffrage as a stepping stone to female suffrage, and it worked for suffrage at state level rather, rather than the national level. So it gained suffrage in Wyoming in 1869 and Utah in 1870. The rival NWSA and AWSA merged in 1890 to form the NAWSA. The women's rights movement was unable to make headway between 1896 and 1908. The WCTU was the most important suffrage organization for women prior to the 1910s. In 1876, it focused energies toward achieving female suffrage. It claimed alcoholism ruined homes and could be abolished only through temperance legislation which meant alone would not what not enact, and it narrowed its focus to prohibition after Willard's death in 1898. Now, there were some gains for women. Women increasingly voted in local elections, especially regarding schools. Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and Idaho gained full suffrage. In California, the liquor lobby defeated suffrage. It believed, perhaps correctly, that women would seek to outlaw liquor, which is what they were, you know, one of the things they were working on. Most states by 1890 passed laws to permit wives to own or control their property after marriage. So that ended the femme covert. So let's get into some other reforms. So the Reform Press, the nation founded by Edwin L. Godkin, G-O-D-K-I-N, in 1865, became the era's most influential journal, liberal and highly intellectual, and it was read largely by professors and preachers. It advocated civil service reform, honesty in government, and a moderate tariff. Henry George uh, wrote Progress, Progress and Power... Mm. Progress and poverty in 1879. Though available land was still plentiful, increased demand increased property values, making land speculators rich. He argued a single tax of 100% on growing land values would stop speculation and curb the growth of massive wealth. Everyone would be able to buy land. Workers would become farmers, and the resulting labor shortage would increase wages. And in unemployment, poverty and crime would end, and his ideas basically just horrified the wealth. Edward Bellamy Looking Backward, 1888, socialist novel, 
The hero, falling into a hypnotic sleep, awakens in the year 2000 to find that social and economic injustices of 1887 have been erased under an idyllic government which made nationalized big business to serve the public interest. Money is abolished, unemployment strikes, and violence vanish. The Bellamy Clubs, or the Nationalist Clubs, emerged to discuss his mild utopian socialism, and it heavily influenced the populist movement. Jacob A. Riss, R-I-I-S, How the Other Half Lives in 1890. He was a photojournalist who exposed dirt, disease, vice, and misery of rat-infested New York slums, and he heavily influenced Theodore Roosevelt and other progressives. Henry DeMarest Lloyd, Wealth Against Commonwealth, 1894. It was one of the first anti-big business publications to come from a member of the elite. It became a model of in investigative journalism, which grew into muckraking in the early, early 20th century. He criticized Standard Oil for corrupting the political system, and his remedy was socialism gained through peaceful means. Thorsten Velblen, Velblen V-E-B-L-E-N. The Theory of the Leisure Class, 1899. Uh-oh. There we go. Had a problem. Uh, he assailed the nouveau riche for flaunting their wealth through conspicuous consumption. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Women in Economics in 18. 98. Considered a classic masterwork of feminist literature, called on women to abandon their dependent status and contribute to the larger life of the community through productive involvement in the economy. Advocated centralized nurseries and cooperative kitchens to facil facilitate women's participation in the workforce. Her ideas anticipated daycare centers and convenience food services. By centuries end, sweeping pa uh, panaceas had lost their appeal. Reformers worked to solve specific problems, thus leading to the progressive movement. Now, you've got your list of your terms to know, as well as your essay questions. Again, your essay questions will not be graded, but it would be a pretty good idea. Uh, it's about a medium probability for this area of study to be on the AP exam. And the ones that I gave you are actually topics that have appeared on previous exams. So, like I said, I would suggest that you go through and kind of write those out and flesh those out to better help you with your AP test.